0: Psalm 86, a prayer of David. Bow down your ear, O Lord. Hear me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am holy. You are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I cry to you all day long. Rejoice the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and attend to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble, I will call upon you, for you will answer me. Among the gods, there is none like you, O Lord, nor are there any works like your works. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will praise you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forevermore. For great is your mercy toward me, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, the proud have risen against me, and a mob of violent men have sought my life, and have not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. Oh, turn to me and have mercy on me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. All right, we're starting numbers seven today. All right. I want you all to know before I get into this that there's going to be a lot of technical stuff, dates, trying to figure out when things happen. I'll be talking about that. Try not to doze off during that. It's it's. Listen, the reason why I do this, even though you know I try to keep things going and show pictures of Christ and give uplifting stuff, the reason why I do this is because inevitably somebody will email and say, "Well, what about this?" And then I've just got the information in there. So uh, it's a lot of information in nine short verses, but it's important information because eventually, if you ever question it, it will be there in the sermon. So don't get disheartened. There's a lot of good stuff in here as far as pictures of Christ as well, so don't worry about that. But when you get to the detailed stuff, don't glaze over and drop a drop sleep or something. Okay, numbers seven, one through nine, this is entitled, An Offering for the Levites. Now it came to pass, when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle, that he anointed it, and consecrated it, and all the furnishings, and the altar, and all its utensils, so he anointed them, and consecrated them. Then the leaders of Israel, the heads of their fathers' houses, who were leaders of the tribes, and over those who were numbered, made an offering. And they brought their offering before the Lord, six covered carts and twelve oxen, a cart for every two of the leaders, and for each one an ox. And they presented them before the tabernacle. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Accept these from them, that they may be used in the work of the tabernacle of meeting, and you shall give them to the Levites, to every man according to his service. So Moses took the carts and the oxen and gave them to the Levites. Two carts and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon, according to their service, and four carts and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Merari, according to their service, under the authority of Ithamar, the son of Aaron the priest. But to the sons of Kohath he gave none, because theirs was the service of the holy things which they carried on their shoulders." There is actually very little left to accomplish before Israel sets out for the land of Canaan. They have spent almost a year in the wilderness and about 330 days at Sinai. Within the next 20 days, they are scheduled to leave, and with an anticipated travel time of mere weeks, they should be standing on the bank of the Jordan River, ready to enter their promised inheritance. To help the Levites in what should be a most arduous trek, though, through the rough terrain, Preparations have been made by the people, and they will be given as an offering to them. This is the subject of today's verses. After that, there will be more offerings made, then in just a very short time after that, the people will be departing. In all, chapter 7 is probably the most repetitive and difficult passage in all of the five books of Moses, and indeed, the whole Bible. Several times I've heard people say, I tried reading the Bible, but eventually gave up. For those who said when they gave up, Leviticus or Numbers is at the top of the list. For Numbers, my guess is that Numbers 7 was probably the clincher. People love Genesis. They enjoy much of Exodus, struggle through Leviticus, hoping for another narrative like Genesis, and get to Numbers, and all hope is lost. They turn a few pages, scanning for something that will be interesting. Their eyes alight on these 89 verses and they carefully and quietly close the book, promising themselves they will read more later, and they never come back. It's a shame. After reading number seven, it's all uphill once again. Our text verse comes from Psalm 119. My soul faints for your salvation, but I hope in your word. My eyes fail from searching your word, saying, When will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in smoke, yet I do not forget your statutes. Actually, in God's word, there are no low spots. Everything is a mountaintop when it's taken in its proper perspective. If we just keep looking for how things point to Jesus, the routine or repetitive verses don't seem so bad. We may not understand why they're there, but we know that they're there for a very good reason. Before we finish today, we'll have a better idea about these nine verses, including some interesting things along the way. We will also revisit the ending of our verses from last week, tying them in with the purpose of the carts that are mentioned in our passage today. The reason for carts is to carry things along on a journey. The purpose of a journey is to carry us to a chosen location. The chosen location is because it is our goal. Along the way, there may be difficult times, flat tires, cheating car mechanics, well, if such thing is actually possible, and other difficulties. But when we are protected on the journey, there is no need to fret or worry. The carts make the burden light. The things that we do carry are because they are precious to us, and the safety of being protected makes the trip a content and happy one. This is the intended idea of the progression of thought so far, whether you have seen it or not. Today, you'll get a glimpse of that. More will be seen as we head out. Oh, and just as we need food and provision for the journey along the way, Please don't forget that at this time, and at all of the time ahead, they are daily going out and gathering manna. Nothing is missing in the trek to the land of promise, and nothing is missing in our walk to glory. Be assured of this. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so, let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got two thoughts for you today. The first is, in that day. It's verses 1 through 3. Verse 1, now it came to pass. That is a faulty translation. The Hebrew reads, vehi beyom, and it came to pass in that day. Because of the words and what is next stated, some scholars look at this as a contradiction within the text itself. That contradiction is supposedly evidenced by the next words. Verse 1 continues, when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle. The day which Moses accomplished this is recorded in Exodus. It's the very last section of the book of Exodus. It says, and it came to pass in the first month of the second year on the first day of the month that the tabernacle was raised up. Listen to that month again. The first month of the second year on the first day of the month. Okay. However, the narrative of numbers has thus far been recorded from a month later than that. Numbers 1-1 said, Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tabernacle of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Thus, liberal scholars are happy to find an error of contradiction in God's word, chiding the ignorant editor of the narrative for being so stupid as to record such an obvious error. In this, they only show their own inept ability to perceive what is being said. In verse 10 of this chapter, the exact same phrase, bayom, or in the day, is also used. That verse will read, And the princes presented the dedication gift of the altar on the day that it was anointed, and the princes presented their offering before the altar. All of the offerings to come are stated as being in the day that it was anointed, and yet the offerings will be presented over a period of 12 days. Thus the term bayom, Or in that day is inclusive of the entire period of the narrative from Exodus 40 even up to now more than a month later the term Bayom then is a Hebraism meaning at that time it has been used this way to speak of indeterminate intervals of time such as during and after the creation of man in Genesis 2 verse 4 and of an entire period of a person's life such as in Genesis 35 verse 3 No contradiction exists, except in the confused minds of liberal scholars who are willing to spend more time trying to undermine the Word of God than they are in actually trying to learn it. What is being said here is that the tabernacle is set up, but it is not yet fully set up. That process is ongoing, and it will continue until all of its implements, including those to be offered in the verses of this chapter, are included in its completion that is certain based on the next words verse 1 continues that he anointed it and consecrated it and all its furnishings and the altar and all its utensils so he anointed them and consecrated them the anointing of these items was accomplished at the erection of the tabernacle but it is said here to include not only its furnishings and the altar but also all its utensils These utensils include the offerings which are to be made by the individual tribes in the verses ahead. That's next week. It's coming over a 12-day period. An actual timeline is difficult to pin down, but some things are known for certain. There is a 50-day period from the erection of the tabernacle in Exodus 40, verse 17, and the departure of the people from Sinai, which will be on the 20th day of the second month, according to Numbers 10, verse 11. The tabernacle was anointed in Leviticus 8, verse 10, and the ordination of Aaron and his sons lasted eight days. That's Leviticus 9, verse 1. During this time, there was also a Passover celebration. Therefore, what is to be detailed concerning the offerings of the tribes probably occurred during the time of the writing of Leviticus. The 12-day offerings would not take more than an hour or so. And the rest of the day, Moses would probably be in the tent of meeting, receiving the laws we have already gone through in Leviticus from the Lord. This would explain the words of the very last verse of chapter 7, which says, Now, when Moses went into the tabernacle of meeting to speak with him, he heard the voice of one speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim. Thus he spoke to him. Adam Clark rather boldly states that the proper place of this account we're looking at right now is immediately after the 10th chapter of Leviticus. That is the chapter which recorded the death of Aaron's two sons and then which detailed the prescribed conduct for the priests in this We can see that the book of Leviticus was partially received and recorded during the events of the book of Numbers, as was stated in our introduction to Leviticus, a sermon which I presented to you on March 26 of 2017. These things are assured concerning the term Bayom, or in the day, because the tabernacle is one portion of the greater whole. What was the purpose of the tabernacle? It was to be a dwelling place of the Lord. But what use is that unless it is inclusive of the people, fully numbered and arranged around it, for whose sake it was fashioned and erected in the first place? In other words, all of what we are reading here is for a purpose. It is so that the Lord may dwell among his people. The senses of them, their arrangement, the calling of the Levites, the duties of the priests, all of this and more is united in one act in regards to the account before us. Thus, the term Bayom, or in the day, carries the full significance of everything that is recorded, from the day of the tabernacle's erection until the day that these things are complete. But what is the actual importance of this? It is because, as we have seen, everything, even to the minutest detail, has been given as a picture of Christ. God incarnate came to dwell among his people In the day, then, includes every aspect of what God has done and is doing in order for that to literally come about in the future. For those looking forward to the true dwelling place of God with men, in the day is speaking of right now until the final detail is complete. We are in the day. The finality of that day carries two major parts to it. The first is the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. The prophets speak of that day numerous times. The term in the day is used by Isaiah again and again and again in this manner. The second part is the eternal state, which will continue on forever. It is where God will dwell with men in the fullest and most complete sense. Until then, the people of God are being numbered, they're being arranged, and their offerings are being made in preparation for what God has determined since before a single Adam Came into existence. Verse 2 Then the leaders of Israel, the heads of their fathers' houses, who were the leaders of the tribes and over those who were numbered, made an offering. The Hebrew is completely the opposite in order of all English translations. It begins, not ends, with the words and made an offering. Only after that does it specify who made the offering. Again, these words confirm to us the general rather than the specific timing of the events which comprise bayom or in the day. Here, the leaders of Israel are those who have already been named as such in chapter 1 verses 5 through 16. This becomes even clearer with the words over those who were numbered. Not only is this after the selection of the tribal leaders, but it is after the census of the men in each tribe. All of this then is after that naming and its subsequent census. And so the writing of at least Leviticus 11 through number six actually comes after that date. Number seven, comprising the 12 offerings over 12 days, certainly runs in a contemporary manner with the writing of those chapters. If these offerings were started on the day after the census, which would have been an incredibly full day, by the way, the 12 offerings would end on the 13th of the second month. As the 14th of the second month will be designated as a special second Passover, according to verse 9-11, this appears to be the correct timing of these events, from the second through the 13th day of the second month. We cannot be dogmatic about this, but this seems to be perfectly arranged as a time to accomplish what lies ahead. It would mean that these offerings were presented without regard to the Sabbath day. If so, then the presentation would probably have been made in connection with the morning offering by the priests who ministered regardless of the Sabbath day. Again, we can't be dogmatic about this, but it does appear from the account that the 12 offerings came on 12 consecutive days. And so what is probably the case is that the offerings we will see were brought forward each morning, one tribe a day. After that, Moses would go into the tent of meeting and receive more of the law from the Lord. The amount of theological information received and then passed on by Moses in these few short days has, as we have found out, been enough for people to study and to ponder and to contemplate and to cherish and to love for 3,500 years. And yet, even today, a new insight will arise from time to time concerning what is recorded here. How many have been found and recorded in the last year alone is unknown, but it is of no small amount. Go back and watch those sermons in Leviticus and you'll realize that. But it is certain that it is enough for numerous scholars to dedicate their lives to and to rejoice in the amazing details to be drawn out, which are hidden in picture, in prophecy, and in verse, word, and letter. Moses probably didn't even have an inkling that what he sat down and wrote out from the mouth of the Lord was so rich, so filled with pictures of Messiah, and so instructive for the lives of God's people. It truly is impossible to imagine the level of wisdom which passed from Creator and down to His humble servant in these marvelous moments where they spoke face to face and issued forth for the people of Israel. And even for us today, the words which are so cherished by so few, and yet so unhappily ignored by so many. Thus it is with the word of God, the incomprehensible, glorious, and eternally relevant word of God. Verse 3, and they brought their offering. As you saw, most of the previous verse is parenthetical. It now resumes with the main thought. It is the leaders over the numbered men who accomplished this, bringing their offering, verse 3 continues, before the Lord. The words, Lifne Yehovah, or before the Lord, will be explained at the end of verse 3 as before the tabernacle. They came forward from their tribes, walking a rather vast distance through the Levites' encampment in order to come to the spot for the presentation of their offering. There, in front of the beautifully ornamented screen of the gate, which was woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and of fine woven linen, they presented their gifts to the Levites. These consisted of, verse 3 continues, six covered carts. Shesh eglot tzav. What the words actually mean is highly debated. The Greek translation of them does not help very much. Many ideas have been put forth. We have two-wheeled carts, we have four-wheeled wagons, we have litters, meaning something born not on wheels, but between the two oxen, one in front and one behind. The idea with this is that the rough terrain would make wheels impractical. However, the weight of these items makes litters equally impractical. The word agala is translated as a cart or a wagon elsewhere. It comes from the same word as egel or calf. Both are derived from agol, meaning circular. The idea is that a calf in its youth will twirl about in a circular manner, enjoying life as it prances in the fields. Thus, these agala are round-wheeled vehicles. Whether they are carts or wagons, we don't know. We will stick with wagons for consistency, and because wagons having four wheels would be a smoother and more stately ride. It makes a nicer mental image. The second word, tsav is from a root meaning to establish. It then probably refers to a covering which is fixed to the wagon. Most translations say covered, or they just ignore the word altogether, hoping that nobody notices. Verse 3 continues, and 12 oxen. The oxen are certainly for pulling wheeled vehicles, not carrying the items of the tabernacle. It is simply unreasonable to expect that the fabrics, wood, and metal pieces which were of such great weight would be carried on litters by so few oxen. Verse 3 continues, a cart for every two of the leaders. Despite what most commentaries state about the nature of these gifts being voluntary, the word for offering in this verse is korban. It is simply an offering brought near whether voluntary or not. For example, the sin offering of Leviticus 4 is a korban. Though not willingly offered, it was still required as an offering for atonement of sins. What is probable is that these were built along with the tabernacle and the Lord expected it as an offering. The same word is again used for the offerings which are coming in the verses ahead in this chapter. The reason why their construction wasn't mentioned in Exodus is rather simple. It is because they have nothing to do with the pictures of Christ, which everything described by the Lord concerning the sanctuary did. When the Lord specified certain materials, measurements, weights, and the like, it was always to give us a picture of Christ. Do you remember that? Page after page after page, paragraph, verse, and even single words giving us pictures of Jesus Christ. These carts, other than their number, which is significant, have no details about their construction, which point to him. The carts, if in fact built specifically for this service, as I submit is the case, they were built by the people and presented by leaders of two tribes each. As two leaders came forward to present them, it is probable that they were not merely common wagons, but they were rather beautifully made and ornamented. It would be an honor to come forth with a second tribal leader and present such a beautiful piece of craftsmanship. Verse 3 continues, And for each one an ox 12 oxen one representing each of the tribes and thus two oxen for each wagon were also brought forth six being the number of man the six wagons are the logical number to be brought forth for carrying the articles of the sanctuary which point to Christ the man in every single detail the 12 oxen point to the number of governmental perfection and they represent the 12 tribes of Israel As the oxen draw along in picture the coming Messiah, so Israel pressed forward through time bringing forth to the world the coming Messiah. Does everybody see the picture? 12 oxen, the 12 tribes of Israel. The carts are picturing Christ the man. The 12 tribes of Israel are drawing forth the Messiah. Verse three continues. And they presented them before the tabernacle. The words lifne ha-mishkan, or before the tabernacle, explain the term Lifne Yehovah, or before the Lord. They are used synonymously here. To be presented before the tabernacle implies that they are thus presented before the Lord. What is amazing about the scene which is unfolding here is that these people have been at the foot of Sinai for over 300 days. During that time, a great deal has happened, both good and bad. However, for much of the time, the tabernacle has been prepared. The materials were gathered, the people were selected for its construction, it was made, and it was finally set up. Now, almost as soon as it has been set up, it's time to break it down and depart. Within less than three weeks, that is going to occur. In that day, all will be right, right as rain. In that day, all things will be made new. There is coming a time when there will be no more pain. In that day, it will come from our Savior, faithful and true. In that day, we shall know, even as we are known. The day is coming when these things shall come to pass. In that day, to us, God's glory will be shown as we stand before the sea, clear as the clearest glass. That day is coming for the redeemed of the Lord. In that day, all will be as it was meant to be. Everything that was marred and corrupted will be restored. In that day, we shall see Jesus smiling upon us so tenderly. In that day, oh, what a day it will be. Our second thought today is the offering for the Levites, verses 4 through 9. Verse 4, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, the translation is not correct. It says, veyomer yehovah el Moshe LeMor. The word is amar, or said, not the bur, or spoke. The Hebrew word carries somewhat the same meaning, but said is used here because the task requires a partnership and people working together. It may seem like trifling, but there is no such thing when attempting to discern what the Lord is relaying to us. And so we rightly say now that the Lord said to Moses, saying, verse five, accept these from them. The Targum of Palestine inserts the thought that Moses would not originally accept the wagons because he doubted if they would be acceptable for use in conveying the tabernacle. That makes no sense at all. It is obvious that the items were to be conveyed on wagons, with the exception of the most holy things, each of which was built with rods for transport. Further, the Lord would not wait until mere days before departure to suddenly decide that wagons were needed, as if he forgot such an important detail. Rather, this entire offering was one prepared for the purpose and in advance of the day, The edifice is standing, the priests have been ordained, and it is now the appropriate time to make the offering. Moses, as the leader, is accepting them from their hands in order to then present them to those who will use them. There is a dignity and a formality to the offering, not a haphazard and dubious state of events taking place. Verse 5 continues, that they may be used in doing the work of the tabernacle of meeting. Another incorrect translation. Twice already, in verse 7-1 and 7-3, the term mishkan, or tabernacle, has been used. Now, a different term, ohel moed, or tent of meeting, is used. It completely destroys the movement of thought to translate two words both as tabernacle. The symbolism is all but lost when this happens. To help in understanding this, we could use another example and equate the mishkan with the Oval Office within the White House. The tent of meeting would then be equated to the White House itself. In verse one, Moses finished setting up the Oval Office, and in verse three, the offering is presented before the Oval Office, meaning where the president actually is. However, here, these things are to be used in the work of the White House. This is the importance of ensuring individual words are translated individually here. Verse five continues, and you shall give them to the Levites. Moses is the leader of the congregation. And so on behalf of the Levites, he formally receives the offerings. This is no different than his inspection of the completion of the work of the construction of the sanctuary itself. At the end of the people's laborious work, we read this in Exodus 39, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did all the work. Then Moses looked over all the work and indeed they had done it as the Lord had commanded just so they had done it and Moses blessed them. Nothing is said about him inspecting the wagons, as there was no picture of Christ in their construction other than the number of them. All that mattered was that they were capable of bearing the loads. Therefore, Moses accepted them for the Levites, maybe with a thumbs up, a pat on the back and a hey, job well done, guys, right? Once they were accepted for the Levites, he was to pass them on. Verse five continues to every man, according to his service. This clause will continue to be explained, but it means that according to the need, based on weight and bulk, the carts would be portioned out. As there are three divisions of Levites, one would think that they might go two by two by two, but such is not the case. There were some extremely heavy objects that would need to be transported, and most of those went to one tribe. Verse 6, so Moses took the carts and the oxen and gave them to the Levites. Just as the Lord said to Moses, so Moses complies with his words. He received the carts and the oxen in the same manner as a leader would receive an offering of assistance from a foreign country for one of his provinces that was in need. And then he would take what was offered and formally present it to those needy souls. Everything about the ceremony here bears an air of dignity and formality from the hands of their brother Israelites and through their great leader, the Levites are then presented with the wagons as follows. Verse seven, two carts and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon according to their service. As you perfectly remember, because we went through it in detail, the Gershonite service was recorded in Numbers chapter four. There it said this, they shall carry the curtains of the tabernacle and the tabernacle of meeting with its covering, the covering of badger skins that is on it The screen for the door of the tabernacle of meeting, the screen for the door of the gate of the court, the hangings of the court, which are around the tabernacle and altar, and their cords, all the furnishings for their service, and all that is made for these things, so they shall serve. These things were heavy and bulky. Layer upon layer of tent material would be carefully piled up between these two carts. Being covered, they would be kept safe from the elements." While hanging in the open, the rain wouldn't affect them, but if it were to rain on them while they were piled up, mold would quickly become a problem. Plus, the immense amount of dust raised by the vast multitudes of people in March makes having them covered much better as well. In total, it was an immense amount of skins and fabrics by the time all the packing was completed. Commentaries which claim this was cumbersome but not very heavy have missed the reality of the matter. They were heavy but not heavy in comparison to those items which were transported in the next verse, verse 8. And four carts and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Merari, according to their service. Double the amount of carts and oxen went to Merari. Assuredly, you can remember the list of the items they were tasked with, but in case someone nodded off during those important verses, which certainly seems unlikely Here's what they said, and this is what they must carry as all their service for the tabernacle of meeting, the boards of the tabernacle, its bars, its pillars, its sockets, and the pillars around the court with their sockets, pegs, and cords, with all their furnishings and all their service, and you shall assign to each man by name the items he must carry. This is the service of the families of the sons of Merari. The weight of each socket is unknown. But supposing each was 40 pounds, which is light. They're probably 70 or 80 pounds each, but we'll say 40 pounds. The combined weight of just those would be over 4,000 pounds. That along with the boards, bars, pillars, pegs, cords, and so on would be an immense amount of weight. The oxen would earn their feed on their way from destination to destination as they trudged through the dry, barren, rocky, inhospitable land. Verse 8 continues, under the authority of Ithamar the son of Aaron, the priest. These words are repeated from verse 428, after the service of Gershon was noted, and then 433, after that of Merari was noted. The thoughts are combined into one statement for both tribes. Ithamar was the youngest son of Aaron, and guess what? He's still a teenager. But he was given this great duty to supervise, Just as he was given the duty of overseeing the inventory of the materials for the tabernacle of the testimony way back in Exodus 38 verse 21, which was also for the service of the Levites. The name Ithamar means island of palms or land of palms. The Tamar or palm is a symbol of uprightness. Thus, the Levites, under the supervision of Ithamar, are considered an island of upright people who are administering a service before the Lord. Verse 9, but to the sons of Kohath he gave none, because theirs was the service of the holy things. Kohath, as you perfectly remember from chapter 4, carried all of the holy things recorded in verses 5 through 15, from the ark with its coverings to the brazen altar and everything in between. There was a great deal of things to carry, and some of them were rather heavy, but they were deemed most holy and were never to be placed on a cart, just as the king of Israel was carried upon a palanquin, as is seen in the Song of Solomon. So these items, representing the true and great king of Israel, Jesus Christ, were to be given this same respect and honor. Correct translations of this verse say holy things, sacred objects, holy objects, something like that. The word is ha-kodesh, or the holy. It is speaking specifically of these most holy items. Some translations say the service of the sanctuary. That would be incorrect. The sanctuary is the entire compound in which is the tent of meeting and where the tabernacle resides, inclusive of its exterior borders, known in Exodus 25, verse 8 as the mikdash, The Kohathites didn't carry the whole sanctuary, but only these particular holy objects, as is seen in her final words of the day, verse 9 finishes with, which they carried on their shoulders. Though these items were heavy, they were carried on poles sufficiently long enough for the appropriate number of men to carry them. Further, there would be many Kohathites on the journey, and they could easily call to another one to come and provide relief as needed. Like geese moving in and out from the front of the formation to get relief at times, so these men could easily move in and out of the duty without even breaking a stride. In the end, the honor of carrying these most sacred objects would far outweigh the burden which temporarily weighed them down. As we are slowly having Jesus Christ revealed to us, now is a wonderful time to see a comparison to him as the King of Israel from the Song of Solomon. Before going there, we need to remember the last portion of our previous sermon. It was the pronouncement of the Berkat Kohanim, or priestly prayer. As I noted then, it was comprised of 60 letters. Everybody remember that? You add three clauses, two uh, sentences in each clause, 15 words, and 60 letters. Okay? As you listen, think of the tribes of Israel on their march toward the land of promise. Who is this coming out of the wilderness, like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the merchant's fragrant powders? Behold, it is Solomon's couch, with sixty valiant men around it, of the valiant of Israel. They all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man has his sword on his thigh because of fear in the night. The words are written in the feminine in the Hebrew. But it is noted that the form may more rightly be taken as the neuter, because there's no specific neuter in the Hebrew. Thus, the question in accord with the surrounding words is asking, who is this group of people coming out of the wilderness? Solomon was, in type, a picture looking forward to Christ. But the words about him also look back in remarkable similarity to the people of Israel conducting their king, Jehovah. The question is, who is this coming out of the wilderness? The word wilderness here is midbar. The same name as the Hebrew book of Numbers, Bemidbar, or in the wilderness. Israel is soon to be on a trek out of the wilderness. The next clause, like pillars of smoke, looks to the cloud, a picture of Christ, which will go forth with Israel throughout their journeys and out of the wilderness. The next clause, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, reflects two of the ingredients found in either the holy oil and or the holy incense, each picturing Jesus Christ. The merchant's fragrant powders is the next clause. They are the other ingredients selected by the Lord, each picturing Christ in one manner or another. The next clause says Solomon's couch. It is the resting place of the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant, where Shalem, or peace, and also where the name Solomon is derived from, is granted. The 60 Geburim, or mighty ones, would be the 60 letters of the priestly prayer resting upon the people as they were blessed by Aaron. The words of the prayer would be as swords of protection for the Milchama, or the battle against the Lord's enemies. The fear in the night, the final clause, is that terror which comes about in the night and which the Lord and His prayer of protection would keep them from. The symbolism looks back to Israel, being led out of the wilderness to the land of promise, protected by the Lord Jehovah. The symbolism also looks forward to Christ, leading His people through the wilderness of their lives, guiding us by His Spirit until we are brought into the eternal presence of the Father. The multitudes of Israel forming an immense cross in the wilderness when encamped were a living picture of a spiritual reality of all of God's redeemed. We are safely in Christ because of his cross, and we are tenderly guided by his spirit. We are enveloped in his fragrance, protected by the blessing of his name, and are on our way to the land of promise where the King of Peace will forever protect us from the harm of spiritual darkness. Fear in the night? It shall never be so. The high priest has pronounced his blessing upon us. Who shall fear the night? And if you've never considered who this great high priest is, we're going through the book of Hebrews right now, one verse at a time. We'll be up in chapter seven very soon of the book of Hebrews, a marvelous chapter which points to everything that we saw in the book of Leviticus and how it prefigured the coming of Jesus Christ. And then it goes back further even to Melchizedek, back in the book of Genesis and how Melchizedek is recorded in just a couple of short sentences in Genesis. And yet it has the most profound theological implications that you will ever imagine. David picked up on it in the Psalms. He made a very short sentence about Melchizedek. And then the author of Hebrews goes into chapter after chapter detailing what those few short sentences mean. It is incredible. And it all points to the one who came to dwell among us and to be our high priest. But first, He had to give up his life in exchange for our sins. He came and he lived the perfect life that you and I can never live. He lived under the law that he gave to Israel. He lived it perfectly. He was born without sin. He died without sin. And that death was in exchange for our sin. And that's why it says that the law is nailed to the cross. It is his body, the fulfillment of the law. And when he died, guess what? Because our sin went to him, imputed to him, our sin died with him. And so when he came out of the grave, because he had no sin of his own, death couldn't hold him. Our sin was left in the grave. And all we have is our position in Christ. We are covered by his blood. People teach, oh, you can lose your salvation. They teach a false doctrine. We are eternally saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. I did the final verse of Hebrews this morning. Hebrews 620, it'll be out in 11 days for you. You'll see. It's speaking right there in implicit reference to the eternality of the salvation found in Christ, and it will be completely revealed in chapter 7 of Hebrews. You will have no doubt when you finish that. And you also have no doubt that the law is done. The law of Moses is over. It says explicitly in Hebrews, it is annulled, it is obsolete, and it is set aside. It is done. We are not under the law of Moses. We are under the grace of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says that we are no longer being imputed sin. Well, that can't be if you're under law because law shows you sin and it imputes sin to you. We are not imputed sin. We are covered by the blood of Christ. We can still sin, but it is not imputed. We had to talk about this yesterday at lunch. Good lunch, too, IHOP. Wow. Anyway, so there you go. It's, It's something that we all must consider. It's something that we all must accept. I do not believe in regeneration of the Spirit in order to call on Jesus Christ. We have free will for that. We call on Jesus Christ and then we are regenerated in the Spirit. That's the logical order of what happens in us. And if you don't call on Christ, you will not be saved. Go to Romans 10, 9 and 10. We'll go there together. And you'll see what you can do in order to be saved. And if you make that decision, it is done. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says that after you do this, that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And that is a guarantee. God doesn't make mistakes and he doesn't make faulty guarantees. Romans 10. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Done deal, folks. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Praise God for that. Okay, question. Before I ask the question, make sure that you call on Jesus, okay? I don't want to close without asking you to actually do it, all right? Question. During the sermon, I said Ithamar was still a teenager. Can anybody tell me how we know that? This is why you have to know the whole Bible. You have to take it in context, and you have to apply all the precepts of the Bible to understanding this. Ithamar was a teenager. Go ahead. You look like you've got it. I'm thinking that the two older brothers who died... Or age to be Doesn't age. give their ages. Doesn't give anybody's I'm ages. I'm going to take you to the book of Joshua. I'm going to take you to the book of Joshua. I thought that I'd have you guys think this through, but I'm still going to have you think it through. I'm just going to give you a clue. I'm going to take you to Joshua 14. It says here in the first verse, it says, These are the areas which the children of Israel inherited in the land of Canaan, which Eliezer the priest... Joshua, the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel distributed as an inheritance to them. Anybody? Who is Eliezer? Come on, we've been talking about this guy now for months. We had four sons of Aaron, right? Two of them died. Nadav and Avihu, right? Who's left? Eliezer and Ithamar. Eliezer is the older. Okay, how do you know that he was a teenager? How old was how old We don't know. He didn't have his driver's license? He didn't have his driver's license, that's true. Here's how we know. It's because everybody that was 19 and older, right. 20 and older, everybody 19 and younger was spared. Everybody 20 and older died with the exception of two people, Caleb and Joshua. Thank you. If that's the case, Eliezer is the older brother. He went into the land of promise and he helped distribute the land. That means that his younger brother was obviously younger than him. You have to take the Bible in context. You have to take it as a total and you have to research these things out. I was sitting practicing this sermon two days ago and I said, oh, you know what? I'm going to add that in and I'm going to ask a question and try to get you to think it through. Isn't that wonderful? The word of God is beautiful. It's absolutely a treasure. Anyway, um, before we uh, talk about next week's sermon, I have something to say. I made a promise that I would not say this, and I have not said a word, but we have two birthdays today. One is out in um, uh, San Francisco, California. I know it is because it's my mom's birthday. It's Nance's birthday today. Nance, if I'm wrong, I'm sorry, but I think it's Nance's birthday today, and so we'll wish her a happy birthday, and the only reason why I know this is because I know it's Oh, I said my mom's birthday. I promised I wouldn't say it. But what I was going to say is that there are flowers here for the birthday person and that person can take them home without me acknowledging it. But now it's too late. I'm sorry. But everybody knew anyway because it was on Facebook. I didn't say a word. So anyway, happy birthday to the two ladies. Next week, we're going to be in the longest, most repetitive section of the Bible anywhere. Okay? This is where most people stop reading their Bible. They close the Bible and they leave it and they say, I'm not going to read anymore. It's... 7, 10 through 89 we are going to go through what is that 90 or i'm sorry 80 verses in one sermon okay this is one hugely long passage but your attention shall not falter it's entitled an offering for the altar that'll be our 14th numbers sermon okay I'll keep it interesting, and I will tell you that, thank goodness, I know somebody named Sergio Voitenko who lives in Israel, who both knows Hebrew perfectly and who also understands computers, because understanding computers and how to do things in computers, he researched out this passage a couple years ago, and I've used that as the basis for this sermon. Otherwise, you'd all be sitting here with drool going down your face, because I wouldn't know what to say, okay? But I will tell you this, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It may seem at times as if you are lost in a desert, wandering aimlessly, but the Lord is there, carefully leading you to the land of promise, and so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Now, next week's poem is going to be about 15 pages long. This week's is very short. It's called An Offering for the Levites. Now, it came to pass when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle That he anointed it and consecrated it and all its furnishings and the altars and all its utensils. So he anointed them and consecrated them. These jobs he did tackle. Then the leaders of Israel, the heads of their fathers' houses, who are the leaders of the tribes as we know, and over those who are numbered, made an offering, and here is how it did go. And they brought their offering before the Lord, six covered carts and twelve oxen, a cart for every two of the leaders, so their job they could tackle, and for each one an ox, and they presented them before the tabernacle. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, these words to them he was then relaying, Accept these from them, that they may be used in doing the work of the tabernacle of meeting, you see, and you shall give them to the Levites, to every man according to his service, so shall it be. So Moses took the carts and the oxen, too, and gave them to the Levites, as he was instructed to do. Two carts and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon, according to their service, and four carts and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Merari, according to their service, too, under the authority of Ithamar, the son of Aaron the priest, as the Lord instructed Moses to do. But the sons of Kohath he gave none, because theirs was the service of the holy things, which they carried on their shoulders, mostly by poles slipped through appropriate rings. Lord God... We are even now in a wilderness, and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct, our lives would be a mess. And so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock, our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand, and may we take it and to our lives daily it apply. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Amen. Heavenly Father. Thank you for this wonderful, wonderful passage which shows us that someday in Israel's life, yet to be in our passage, they will march out of the desert and into the land of promise and you will be there leading them with a pillar of cloud and they will be bearing you on a couch of peace, your mercy seat where mercy is bestowed upon the people of Israel, all picturing the wonderful place of propitiation, which is found in Jesus Christ, our Lord. How wonderful it is to know that he died for our sins. How glorious it is to know that he rose again for our justification. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you for all that that you have done for us in him. And Lord, we certainly lift up all of the people that we mentioned at the beginning of this service, so many that are not here today because of fractures, broken bones, problems with lungs, everything that has happened in the past couple weeks has been almost overwhelming for these people and we would pray that you would restore them, give them health. For those that are traveling that you would bring them back here safely and that we would have a happy congregation full of smiles here in the weeks ahead but please take care of these people, meet their needs and bless them and we certainly also once again lift up Lothar who is facing the possibility of cancer which was so difficult for him to get through the first time. We would pray that the test would come back negative and that he would be able to come back to America and visit us once again without the troubles that he had last time. And Lord, whatever happens in these people's lives, we want to praise you because you have their eternity already secured. What a great God you are to give us that sure and safe promise that we have. We have all hope because of the anchor for our soul, which is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.